Good afternoon, everyone. It's reported in BibleArchaeology.org website that they recently received an email from a person named Jenny. In her message, Jenny made a number of claims maligning the integrity of Scripture. The gist of her assertions is that the Bible is fiction. Among the specifics she alleged are there was no mass exodus of erstwhile Israelite slaves from Egypt. David and Solomon are fictional characters. The accounts of battles and victories over, of Israel over her enemies is fiction. The biblical writers hijacked Egyptian history and passed it off as their own. The Associates for Biblical Research owns the BibleArchaeology.org domain and a representative of the organization in a lengthy response to Jenny's email stated in part, quote, sadly, most people hold these views because of what they read on the internet or watch on TV. Many have been lied to by their unbelieving college professors and mentors. Some even learned these erroneous views about the Bible in Christian colleges and seminaries. In providing this rather long and detailed response, it is our hope that Jenny and others like her will seriously reconsider the authority of the Bible and its author, Yahweh, and the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ." End quote. I might add that many also learned the views expressed by Jenny in their churches. In today's sermon, I want to discuss the relationship of the gospel to history and how the gospel is defended and propagated in part by the study of history and fields touching on history, such as archeology span and epigraphy, which is the study and deciphering of ancient inscriptions. Some may wonder or have wondered perhaps why many of my sermons have to do with historical subjects. For example, among others, I've given sermons on ideas about the locations of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the means of their destruction on Egypt and evidence of the presence of Joseph and the Israelites in Egypt on Jesus, James, and other apostles and what extra biblical historical sources reveal about them on David and Solomon and their exploits and the evidence concerning them from history and archeology span on the battles of the Bible and how the record concerning them supports the historical authenticity of scripture and we had a service featuring recent discoveries relating to the development of the written Hebrew language. I'm afraid far too many who identify themselves as Christians have a much too narrow view of what the gospel is. Many might think that the subjects I've mentioned have little or nothing to do directly with the gospel. If there are people who have that idea, they are mistaken. The word of God is the gospel. The word of God is the gospel. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 and verse 25, 1 Peter 1 and verse 25, the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. This is the word by which the gospel was preached to you, the word of the Lord. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 4 and verse 4, Matthew 4 and verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he was quoting Moses, who is recorded as having made that statement 
in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. In the book of Hebrews, we read in Hebrews 4 and verse 2, Hebrews 4 and verse 2, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The them he's referring to are the Israelites in the wilderness before they entered the land of Canaan. And the ones who preached the gospel to them, the Israelites, were Moses and Aaron and those who assisted them and also God himself when he spoke the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. What these scriptures tell us is that every book of the Bible is part of the gospel. Every paragraph, every word in the original autographs of the books of the Bible is part of the gospel. The gospel is not limited to statements to the effect that Jesus died for our sins or that Jesus is coming to rule the world. Although those are central features of the gospel and in certain respects, everything in the Bible relates to these concepts. Since the entire word of God, which is the Bible, is the gospel, that means that much of the gospel message consists of history. Much of the gospel message consists of history. In certain respects, nearly all of it is history or is directly related to historical material. The book of Genesis is history. The book of Exodus is history. The book of Leviticus is a history relating to the giving of the law through Moses. The book of Numbers is a history of Israel in the wilderness. The book of Deuteronomy, besides recording laws and prophecy, contains a good deal of historical material. The prophecies of the Bible are history written in advance. The books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, the books of Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, the Chronicles, and Job are all history. Nearly all the other books of the Old Testament contain a significant amount of historical material. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts are historical records concerning Jesus' ministry in the early church. And most, if not all, of the other books of the New Testament contain significant historical material as well. In fact, the epistles of Paul are really historical documents which give us a great deal of information about the uh, New Testament church in the first century AD. It also gives us a pattern of how we are to uh, conduct ourselves in terms of uh, the church today. Moses is mentioned 79 times in the New Testament. Abraham is mentioned 71 times in the New Testament. David is mentioned 54 times in the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Although the Bible consists largely of history in many ways, it is a mere summary containing waymarks or pointers to a much larger volume of knowledge. John, at the end of his account of Jesus' ministry, wrote, in John 21, verse 25, John 21, verse 25, there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What this tells us is that the record we find in the book of John is a tiny fraction of what could be learned 
about the things Jesus has done. And since Jesus is the creator, what John wrote is not just hyperbole. Just as there is much more that could be learned about Jesus, so there's much more we could learn about any subject in the Bible's historical record. Historical research is necessary to fill in many of the gaps in what the Bible reveals. For example, Luke speaks of Jesus being born in the days of a king named Herod. He writes of a decree from Caesar Augustus issued while Quirinius was governor of Syria, which coincided with Jesus' birth. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Luke 3 and verse 1, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of uh, Iturea, and the region of uh, Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and uh, uh, Sapphiras, or Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas excuse, excuse me, were high priests, Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, the only way that we could really get an idea of when these things occurred is to consult historical records, which tell us of these individuals and when they ruled. But we are given clues from Luke about what to look for as far as pinpointing the dates of these things that are being discussed in the book. In the book of Daniel are prophesied a series of four kingdoms to be dominant on the earth. The first three of these kingdoms are identified by name, but the fourth is not named. The only way we can know what the fourth kingdom is is through the study of history and relating historical facts to what is revealed in the prophecies. The Bible is the foundation of knowledge. It's not the totality of knowledge. And we are to build on that foundation and grow in knowledge and spiritual understanding. Proverbs 18 and verse 15, Proverbs 18 and verse 15, it says the heart of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. One way we can grow in knowledge is by learning more from history and science about matters that are covered only briefly in the Bible. A great deal has been learned in modern times, not only about the creation and how it functions, but also about historical matters relating to the Bible. Studying these things in the proper way can strengthen and confirm our faith and confidence in the Bible and lead us to a more in-depth understanding of its revelation. If you were Satan or one of Satan's henchmen, how would you go about undermining people's confidence in the gospel, in God's laws, in God's way of life? Well, there are actually many ways. Satan has a lot of tricks up his sleeve but an obvious way of doing that, since the Bible is largely a book of history, is to assail the Bible as unreliable, to assert that the historical record related in the Bible is fraudulent, that it's mostly just made up, that it's fiction and myth. And that's exactly what Satan and his witting or unwitting minions have done. The Bible tells us that God created the universe and that he created all living things on the earth. Now along comes someone with an alternative explanation 
Noah's claim, God didn't create life on the earth. Life arose spontaneously of its own accord. And God didn't create the vast array of living creatures on the earth. They evolved somehow from the first microscopic living things that emerged from a chemical soup. Now, how did life, complex as it is, even in the tiniest organisms, emerge by chance from a chemical soup, you might ask? And how did even more complex creatures of every description manage to evolve from those tiny organisms? Well, never mind the details, just trust the experts, we're told. And if you don't believe what they say, you are anti-science. Don't trust the Bible, trust the spinmeisters of the evolutionary fable is what we're expected to do. And what about Moses? Moses didn't really write the first five books of the Bible, we're told. Writing didn't even exist when he supposedly lived. When that claim was proven false, additional claims were made to the effect that the Bible is fraudulent. Where's the proof? There is no proof, but trust the experts, we're told, because that's what they say. Jude wrote in Jude 1 verse 3, Jude 1 verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. An article published in, by the Associates for Biblical Research relates in their conception of how, uh, relates, I should say, their conception of how confidence in God's word has steadily eroded in the modern world. And I'm quoting from that article. where it says, if we've heard it once, we've heard it a thousand times. Those who ignore history are destined to repeat it. This little truism would long ago have slipped to the status of mere cliche, except for the fact that it's painfully true. Indeed, we can't correct the mistakes of the past unless we know what they are and understand their negative impact on our lives. The article goes on to say in the 19th century, while Christians were busy focusing on the salvation of Polynesians and pygmies, a handful of marginal university scholars were breeding worms of doubt about the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. At first, the scholarly majority paid little attention to their theories. By the mid-19th century, in the absence of anything like biblical archaeology or near, ancient Near Eastern studies that might have acted as a corrective, Higher critical scholarship was well on its way toward acceptability. But if Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, then who did? And where, where did all those stories come from? The higher critical answer, the first five books of the Bible derived from a series of Jewish writers during the ninth and through the fifth centuries BC who wrote down their versions of ancient campfire stories spun by ancient Israelites embellished by vivid imaginations and theological agendas. In a nutshell, the growing community of European higher critics was saying that the foundational portion of scripture, the Mosaic Torah itself, was historically unreliable and little better than fiction. And the gnawing of the worms was increasing exponentially. By the late 1800s, the tide of scholarly opinion concerning the historical reliability of the Bible was turning 
decidedly in the favor of the higher critics. The worms of doubt had eaten a hole through the former Christian faith of vast swaths of academia and were beginning to gnaw into the minds of the public as well. The missionaries were still, were still preaching to the natives in distant lands, but back home the credibility of scripture was quickly disintegrating. European Christianity wasn't paying much attention, however, and what worms it did see it simply tolerated. Churches took no steps to cure the rising doubts about biblical reliability, and the worms began to eat away at European Christendom itself. The erosion of belief in the historical authenticity and authority of Scripture might have gone further and faster if not for the rise of biblical exploration and archaeology in the late 1880s. Early in the 19th century, the published exploits of Napoleon in Egypt had lit a fire of interest in the Near East and the Bible lands. British, German, and French explorers plied through Egypt, Mesopotamia, Asia Minor, and the Levant, shedding light on the biblical word and hauling back huge quantities of artifacts to the museums of Europe, heightening interest in biblical history. During this period, the disciplines of Near Eastern studies and archaeology were born, and they slowed the public acceptance of higher critical scholarship, even tempering it in the universities by demonstrating the tangible reality of the world described in the Bible. But right here, the story takes an almost bizarre turn. Ironically, the church, its universities and seminaries by the late 19th century had almost completely swallowed critical biblical scholarship, hook, line, and sinker. And they chose mostly to ignore the secular phenomenon of digging up the biblical world. That's right, biblical archeology span was almost entirely a secular enterprise because the church and its schools for ministers chose to ignore it in favor of studying the biblical text in isolation and higher critical theory was now their adopted method for doing just that. The worms had eaten the need for biblical reliability right out of the church. From the latter part of the 19th century into the first half of the 20th century, both European and American Christianity had the opportunity to embrace and support the scientific confirmation of the Bible through archeological research, but failed to do so. So here we are, the worms of doubt that gnaw away at our trust in biblical truth have infested our American culture and have even shredded much of the contemporary Christianity's belief in biblical reliability. But individual Christians and churches still have a chance not to repeat history but to take the present opportunity to support the scientific confirmation of scripture in the field most relevant to the biblical text itself, archeology. span And that's from an article titled Missions of the Mind, Christianity's Colossal Failure to Win on the Home Front, published on July 5th, 2006. Written by uh, Stephen Collins, originally published in Trinity Southwest Seminary, or by Trinity Southwest Seminary. And I believe Stephen, this uh, particular Stephen Collins is a uh, member of the faculty there, or at least was. It should be understood that 
originally the term archaeology meant the study of all kinds of historical records, not just artifacts dug up from the earth. A full comprehension of history must include all evidence available, including written records and artifacts that can shed light on the details of history. Overwhelmingly, an accurate appraisal of those records that have been discovered and consulted supports the biblical testimony. Let me repeat that. Overwhelmingly, an accurate appraisal of those records that are available supports the biblical testimony concerning what it tells us and what it contains in its historical record. However, most people have been led to believe the exact opposite because they have not been taught much about how the Bible is supported by historical research. Instead, they've been fed and swallowed a steady diet of cleverly devised lies. A reason to be interested in the discovery of the earliest stages of the development of the Hebrew alphabet during the era of the Israelite sojourn in Egypt is that it helps to expose certain falsehoods that have been promulgated to discredit the Bible. Quoting from uh, an article called, called Was Hebrew the First Alphabet by Steve Law, published on March 9, 2019 on the website PatternsofEvidence.com. This article states, quote, the fact that Old Hebrew is thought to have first emerged around 900 B.C., and this is a, this is a common teaching of scholars, especially scholars that reject the authenticity of Scripture. The fact that the Old Testament is thought to have first emerged around 900 B.C. contributes to the thinking that the accounts in the first books of the Bible like the exodus from Egypt were passed down as oral traditions that became exaggerated and mixed with fiction before being written down centuries later. If it turns out that the world's oldest, oldest alphabet was Hebrew and that Moses did in fact use it to write the Torah, that would change how the world views the exodus period, the Bible and world history, end quote. Now, I think the author is too optimistic in that appraisal, but I don't believe necessarily the world would change its view of the Bible, even if that were absolutely confirmed. But it would have even less of an excuse to believe the malicious fables that have been spun to destroy confidence in the historical record contained in the Bible. But even without proof that Hebrew was the first alphabet, there is little basis for denying mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Another source comments on the skepticism towards the Bible that's dominant in today's world and how the historical record preserved in the Bible was developed and how the Bible has been vindicated by archeological and historical research. Quoting from this article, it says, the first five books of the Old Testament Genesis to Deuteronomy are known collectively as the Pentateuch and the belief of Jews and Christians that in their present form, 
there the work of Moses was not challenged until about two centuries ago when the emergence of textual criticism gave opportunity to men with rationalizing tendencies to find reasons for asserting that most of the Old Testament was written neither by the reputed authors nor at the period indicated. From this, it was an easy step to suggest that much of the Old Testament narrative and history is in fact nothing more than written up legend and folklore having little or no basis in fact. This process continued into the present has created in the popular mind a totally false impression of the Old Testament and taken away a great deal of its value. The fact that the discoveries of archeologists in the last century have nullified many of the critics' conclusions and assertions, and in not a few cases made their confident 19th century pronouncements look rather silly, has not filtered through to popular writers, teachers, and broadcasters with the result that the 19th century picture of the Old Testament is still the one that gets the publicity. It is unfortunately true that youthful Christians are liable to be impressed by this show of scholarship and tend to accept the presentation without knowing how utterly out of date it really is. The main principles upon which the case for the late writing of the Old Testament is built up are five in number, to wit. One, that writing was unknown and had not been invented before the time of the Hebrew prophets about 7 to 800 BC. Two, that the religious thought of nations without exception started with polytheism in the earliest times and progressed to monotheism, the worship of one God in later times and not the other way around as Genesis has it. Three, that the code of laws credited to Moses is too advanced for so early a date and must have been devised in the time of the kings of Israel and Moses' name attached. Four, that the Levitical ritual is too sophisticated for people just out of Egypt and must have been the product of a priestly class after the Babylonian captivity. Five, that the historical events in Babylonia and Egypt recorded in Genesis are unhistorical and never occurred and are a later compilation of old traditions and folklore and that many of the kings and notable persons referred to never existed. So those are the principal core teachings of many professors of theology in the seminaries and other schools, including secular as well as church-related or church-sponsored colleges and universities and educational institutions, and of uh, many popular writers. Going on, the article says, the cold hard facts of archeological discovery since 1880 have exploded all of these assumptions, for assumptions they were, and demolished the theories regarding the Old Testament built up so painstakingly by the critics of the 19th century. And uh, I might interject that these critics virtually turned the history of, of what's related in the Bible upside down and backwards. The article goes on to say not one statement of fact in Genesis has been disproved. And a great many records of people and events for which the Bible was the only authority for thousands of years have now been established indisputably true. 
by means of contemporary written tablets and documents. The quiet comment of Professor A.H. Sace, who died in 1933, a noted archeologist, is relevant and pungent. Quote, it is not the biblical writer, but the modern author who is now proved to have been unacquainted with the contemporaneous history of the time, end quote. Going on, the article says, in thus establishing the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, the origin of the documents now comprising Genesis have still to be explored. The whole of the events therein narrated occurred long before Moses' lifetime. With regard to the other four books, Exodus to Deuteronomy, the position is different. They have to do entirely with matters with which Moses was personally connected. There can be no doubt that these four books were composed and completed in written form during the Exodus itself, probably in the main during the 38 years that Israel was stationary at Kadesh and final chapters of Deuteronomy with their account of the death of Moses being added by Joshua or Eliezer. Dr. A.S. Yehuda, a leading authority on the ancient Egyptian and Hebrew languages, pointed out in 1933 that these four books were written in an Egyptianized form of Hebrew, which demanded that the writer thought as much in Egyptian as he did in Hebrew. That writer, of course, was Moses, brought up in the court of Pharaoh and learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, I might interject here that Moses would have been brought up speaking the Egyptian language and probably learned Hebrew after he left Egypt, but he might, might have learned at least some of it while he was in Egypt because there were many Hebrews there at the time. Going on, it says, in the case of Genesis, it has been well established by experts in the ancient languages that the last 14 chapters of Genesis, which detail the story of Joseph in Egypt, contain a goodly number of Egyptian words. In the first 11 chapters, from creation to the death of Terah, a great number of Akkadian and Sumerian words and names. So to reiterate, the last 14 chapters contain many Egyptian words. The first 11 chapters contain a number of Akkadian and Sumerian words. That would be the area from which Abraham came. The Akkadians were descendants of Shem and Sumerians, descendants of Ham. Both races dwelt together in the plains of the Tigris and Euphrates, whence Abraham came. In the first case, it is evident that the history of Joseph, Joseph's life in Egypt and the, and the death there of Jacob was recorded by Joseph or his fellows and these documents written on papyrus and quite likely in Egyptian came into Moses' possession. The records of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael, Jacob, and Esau, and the 12 sons of Jacob and Canaan, which might well have been either on goatskins, parchment, or clay tablets, all of which were in use in Canaan, would also have been preserved in the archives of one of the heads of the tribes, probably Judah and so likewise to have come to Moses. In the case of the first 11 chapters, internal evidence 
point to their having been compiled in the form in which they came to Moses during the period 22 to 25 centuries before Christ, and therefore considerably earlier than the time of Abraham. Among these evidences are the facts that all the geographical names are those in current use at that period, and some of them had passed out of use or been replaced by other names by Abraham's day. The proper names are derived from Akkadian or Sumerian originals, and in many cases incorporate the names of their gods. Many words of Akkadian or Sumerian origin appear in the text. Thus, the geographical names Eden, Havilah, Nod, Hadikal, and Genesis 2 and 4 are the Sumerian Edenu, Kavila, Nadu, Diglot of the 24th century BC. Instances such as these show that Genesis chapters 2 to 4 at least were composed by a dweller on the Euphrates not later than about 2300 BC. Certain grammatical errors in dealing with some Sumerian words tend to indicate that the compiler was more familiar with the Semitic Akkadian language than the Hamitic Sumerian. By the way, Sumerian here is spelled S-U-M-E-R-I-A-N. And this strengthens the supposition that he was one of the ancestors of Abraham, perhaps Eber. He must, even at this early date, have compiled his narrative from pre-existing records and almost certainly had two separate accounts of previous times before him, one Semitic and one Hamitic, which he combined into a continuous story. So the sacred book of Christian Jewish faiths had its origin not in folklore and legends of ancient times collected and edited by some priestly dignitary in the 8th century BC, but in the painstaking work of men of God who lived in the dawn of history, setting down their stories in archaic forms of writing, which had to be translated and copied time and again in new and different characters even before Abraham saw them. It has been abundantly demonstrated in this our day that the stories of the Old Testament are factually true. The work of men who knew the facts and lived within measurable time of the events they recorded, end quote. This is from an article titled The Antiquity of the Books of Moses, published in a publication called Bible Study Monthly by BibleFellowshipUnion.co.uk. And I might mention that since the Sumerian and Akkadian cities had been buried long before the 7th and 8th centuries BC, and probably their languages had pretty much ceased to be used, there's virtually no way that authors at that time could have written those documents in those languages or using words borrowed from those languages. In 1888, the Tel El Amarna tablets were discovered with the dates of the writing stretching back to 1400 BC. Then the uncovering of the Hittite Empire in Anatolia divulged writing dated to 1800 BC. Ras Shamra in Syria was dug up with writing dating to 1400 BC. Tablets found in Babylon, Assyria, and Sumer are dated as far back as 2000 to 2500 BC. And these are just a few of many examples of how the Bible's 
critics who had claimed that writing didn't exist at the time of Moses have been proven wrong. Now the dates archeologists assign to artifacts cannot necessarily be trusted, but these dates that I just quoted are probably close to being correct. What I plan to do, as long as I have breath and strength to do so, is to expand on the themes of scripture, to expose the falsehoods of those who attack its veracity. I plan to highlight corroborative evidence of the truth of scripture, and thus to help make the gospel more plain and believable to those who are willing to hear. Contending for the faith includes defending the historical accuracy of the scriptures, as well as explaining the truth of what the scriptures mean.